Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, at the conclusion of 2023, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary announced its Word of the Year. Uh, It seems like periodically I hit on those words of the year after they're announced. Uh, The announcement is intended to to recognize words that have sort of been invoked in our culture and even to some extent shaped our culture. Uh, Sometimes the way that our culture responds to those words shapes the definition of the word itself. And so back in 2022, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary Word of the Year was the word gaslighting. And I actually remember talking about that here a little bit. Gaslighting is the idea that you somehow cause someone else to almost question their sanity or the validity of their perceptions of something that's happened. Sort of manipulative tactic. When you gaslight somebody, you literally cause the other person to begin to doubt their own perceptions of what's happening around them. That's gaslighting. The year before that in 2021 was the word toxicity. And so that's been a word that's hugely been used in our culture. Uh, We talk about toxic cultures. Sometimes these words are used to such an extent that they actually become somewhat meaningless. Uh, Sometimes these days, even if somebody disagrees with you, Uh, The accusation is, well, they're just gaslighting me. They're a toxic person. Those words certainly have legitimate, objective levels of meaning and application, but sometimes they're simply applied so freely that the definitions actually become twisted. Well, 2023's Merriam-Webster word of the year is the word authentic. And if you're the least bit alive in our culture... Uh, you understand the significance of the word authentic in the world in which we live. The, the word authentic actually means a real, actual, not false or imitation. It means worthy of acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact. Uh, Part of the challenge with the word authentic is that this is one of those words that's beginning to be somewhat reshaped by our culture. The way that our culture sort of understands authentic is not necessarily something that's based on fact, but rather authentic has application to what you yourself feel is the most true. Uh, To be authentic to yourself doesn't necessarily mean living according to some external fact. We just sang the song, Firm Foundation. It doesn't mean necessarily anchoring your life to something that's factually true. In our culture, the word authentic means anchoring your life to the most inner part of who you are and responding to your own passions, your soul, your heart, your spirit. That's sort of the sense of authentic in our modern culture. Does that make sense? Now, friends, I just got to say, hopefully this will be understandable this morning. Uh, I'm not going to really work through an outline. And so uh, 
it's some, these are things that I, I swim in. And honestly, I feel like some of what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, it could not be more culturally appropriate than it is at this very moment. Uh, we live in a culture, we live in a world where we ourselves struggle with what it means to be authentic. What does it look like to be an authentic follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be an authentic human being? And so I think we're going to talk about this morning. I am, I'm hoping that it's helpful. Um, let me know if it's not, and we'll never do it again. <laughs> uh, but this week and next week, we're going to try to dive into this. It's kind of going to be a, a, a pairing up of these weeks. And so hopefully you'll find this, this helpful. Here's what Paul says. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, I just want to clue you into this a little bit. We're going to read the whole passage, but I want to jump ahead uh, to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. It'll be in the screens. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit, where? In your inner being. And so, so there's something about your inner being that Paul says is foundationally important. Just a quick snapshot. Paul is not saying, hey, it's only facts that matter. It's only your brain. Paul acknowledges that you have an inner being that needs to be strengthened. Look at what he says. So that Christ may dwell where? In your hearts, Right? Not just in, so, so Paul right out of the chute in this one verse, and I want, I want to get to this first because I want you to kind of like read this prayer together through the lens of this. Uh, Paul just got done the first three chapters talking about God's truth, things that are factually true about God. But Paul also says it doesn't just stop at your brain. The application of who God is is not just a brain fact, it's also a being reality. So there's something about our culture that's, that's twisted by simply defining authenticity as only what I feel. But Paul is also saying like, hey, there's something about your inner being, there's something about your heart that's not irrelevant, and it's not just your brain that needs to be shaped by the gospel. It's not just agreeing to gospel truths. It's your inner being, your sense of self, that also needs to be shaped by the gospel. See where Paul's headed with that? So friends, this is just incredibly relevant to our world today. It's incredibly relevant to our lives. As I look at my life as a follower of Jesus, and I look at followers of Jesus just around me, I think probably some of the skepticism that many have toward the church and toward those who are followers of Jesus actually comes from those outside looking in and saying, gosh, they, they claim to trust in Jesus, but I don't really see a Jesus dynamic in their life. Does that make sense? They, they say they believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure if these followers of Jesus I'm not sure that I see authentic change, an authentic experience with the person of Jesus in their inner being. I'm not sure if I really see who Jesus is as really gripping their hearts. And in some ways, 
It's maybe the perceived inauthenticity of followers of Jesus that has generated this sense that the most authentic thing that you can do is just to simply follow your heart. Well, hopefully it's helpful. What we're going to do is we're going to read this portion of Scripture, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. We're going to read it this week and next week. Uh, we're just going to cover the first part of it this week. We'll dive into the next part of it uh, next week. Uh, so why don't we stand together? Let's stand, and the verses will be on the screen. Uh, periodically, we stand when we read Scripture, and uh, I'll read the part that says leader, and then please all respond with a sense of conviction, and, and read this deliberately. Think about what you're saying. Uh, give yourself to it as we read the part that says all together. Make sense? Here we go. Uh, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. All? I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Together, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Awesome. You can be seated. So awesome just to hear this room filled with uh, those words of scripture. Uh, Thaddeus Williams uh, came out with the book last year, 2023, uh, and the book was simply entitled, Don't Follow Your Heart, Boldly Breaking the Ten Commandments of Self-Worship. And so the book was actually directed toward this reality in our culture that the most authentic thing that you can do is to follow your heart. And the title of his book was, Don't Follow Your Heart, Boldly Break the Ten Commandments of Self-Worship. Because following your heart is all about saying that your heart, your inner being, is the most authoritative, truthful guide to the person that you're designed to be. That's the cultural message that we receive. And the best thing that you can do, the most flourishing thing that you can do as a human being, the most authentic thing that you can do is to follow your heart. And the title of his book is Don't Follow Your Heart. Instead of that leading to authenticity, it actually leads to inauthenticity. Remember way back when, actually it was when we began uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, we said, Paul said he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We said, look, you've got to be a prisoner of something. You're a prisoner of some kind of belief system. That prison can either be life-giving, like, you know, you're, you're, you're in prison when you're in a plane, 
And you, if you step out of the prison of that airplane, like you disintegrate, your body explodes because in the prison of the airplane, it's pressurized in the higher levels of, of altitude. And the only way that your body survives is to be in the prison of that plane. You step out of that prison, you're dead. And so it actually brings freedom to be in the prison of the airplane. Well, the same thing is true spiritually as well. You're a prisoner of something. You can be a prisoner of your own heart. You can be a prisoner of your own inner being and the direction that it's giving to you. Or you can be a prisoner to God's love, his truth, his grace, his mercy, his compassion. Maybe we'll go through some of the others next week, but let me just give you, uh, Thaddeus Williams also wrote an article um, about five reasons not to follow your heart. Let me just give you two of them this morning. Maybe we'll jump into the next three next week, but just two quick this morning. He says, number one, number one reason not to follow your heart is that your heart is too dull. It's too dull. He says, validating every feeling seems exhilarating at first, but we end up trapped inside our own mental constructs. He says, we become what David Foster Wallace called lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdom. It's a prison. He says, if you're going to just follow your own heart, you actually become lords of your tiny skull-sized kingdom. If you're going to say the most authentic person I can be is to follow my own inner being, the prison that you're operating in is simply the small capacity of your pea-sized heart and brain. And it's a constricting prison. I love it when he says, your tiny skull-sized kingdom. Listen, friends, the reason we live in a culture that's significantly facing lots of desperation, emotionally, mentally, every which way, is because we live in the prison of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms. It's a prison. And so he says, our, your heart, your inner being is too dull for you to simply follow its passions and directions. Augustine described God is the infinite and unbounded ocean of being. So what do you want to give yourself to? You want to give yourself to the God who's an infinite, unbounded ocean of being, or do you live in the fishbowl of your skull-sized capacity? And so he says, don't follow your heart. Your heart's too dull. Your heart's too constricted. Your heart's too limited. Your heart's too narrow. Your heart's too confining. Second reason he says, and I kind of love his word here. It's not a word that I don't think I've ever used. He says, our hearts are too dithering. So your heart is dull. That's a reason not to follow your heart. Also, your heart is too dithering. He says, our hearts are in constant flux. Our hearts are always in motion. Sometimes they're cold and slow. Other times our hearts are fast and active. And so your heart is always moving. Don't follow your heart because what your heart and what your inner being tells you one day is probably going to be different than what it tells you the next day. And it's certainly going to be different than what it's going to tell you 10 years from now. 
Your heart's always moving. It's always in flux. It's always changing. And, and so what happens in your innermost being is absolutely important because Paul literally prays for that. But he also says, don't let your inner being, don't let your innermost part, don't let your heart be your guide because it's too dull and it's too dithering. Again, those are just two reasons that Thaddeus Williams give. We'll look at maybe some of the others next week. So let's look at it, dive into our text a little bit more. Paul starts out by saying this in verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Notice that, so Paul is going to pray this prayer that we just read together. It's a prayer that is directly addressed about what we experience in our hearts. It directly addresses, it's a prayer that directly uh, asks God to make the presence of Christ rich in our lives, to know the depth and breadth and width and height of his love. Paul is going to be praying all that. And notice it says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Uh, typically in ancient times, the standard posture for prayer was standing. And so when Paul says that he kneels, there seems to be the sense that like this is a particularly, this is a particular prayer that is particularly deep, requires a, a significantly heightened level of dependence on God. And rather than simply praying in the normal posture of standing, like this is a prayer that's so weighty, that's so deep, that's so transformational, that requires the power of God to such an extent that Paul actually kneels before the Father in heaven. We can pray lots of prayers, and, and they're all important. But Paul says, this one, I'm kneeling for because this one goes to the heart of you, who you are as a human being. Listen, friends, your innermost being, your heart is a God-sized territory. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a human capacity. Sort. You don't have capacity to manage your innermost being. You don't have the capacity to manage your heart. Your heart is so important to the person of who you are. Your heart is so significant. Paul says, man, this prayer requires kneeling. I'm so dependent on God for the shaping of my innermost being. I'm so dependent on God for my heart that this one requires kneeling. He says, before the Father in, for the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I don't want to take too much time in this, but it might be helpful. Um, scholars kind of debate whether when he says that, he's talking about like God as being the father of like all of humanity, whether he's talking about the God being the father of those who are fathers of Jesus, who are sons and daughters of God. So maybe just real quick, I thought I'd, I'd sketch out a little bit. The Bible uses the word father in a number of ways, or sees God as father in a number of, number of ways. Number one, down here, um, Scripture does see God as the father of creation. Uh, over in Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 17, as Paul is talking to the people of Athens, he uses these words. He says, 
We are all God's offspring. And so there is a sense which God is the father of all. He's the creator of all. That's one way scripture uses the idea of father. We are God's offspring. That's what Paul tells the people in Athens. They're not believers. They're far from God. They don't believe in this God that he's talking about. But Paul says, hey, like whether you know it or not, you're still God's offspring. In other words, he's still your father. He's still the provider. Scripture makes it clear that that God is so good, God is so gracious, there's going to be millions and millions of people today who sit down to a meal and don't breathe a hint of prayer of thanks to God for that food, but they're eating that food precisely because God is the father of all. God is so gracious, he's so compassionate, so kind. He doesn't pick and choose and say, oh, like, I'm going to give my favorite people something to eat. And these people over here who don't believe in me and like me, like I'm not going to give them anything. God is so gracious, kind, and compassionate. Today, millions and billions of people will eat, even they don't, though they don't have a hint of thankfulness in their heart toward God. Why? Because God's the father of all. Everyone is his offspring. Well, I'm going to jump up here. There's another way that um, God is also the father of Jesus. Totally different than this, but it's another way that we're told in Scripture God is father. Uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus comes as the unique son of God, in a very unique way, the father in heaven is the father of Jesus. Now, here's the deal. Uh, Jesus always existed. Jesus himself is God. So it's not as though God creates Jesus as he created the rest of creation. It's not the kind of father relationship God has with his son, Jesus. Instead, The relationship between God the Father and his son Jesus is one of both interacting and working together in the redemption of human beings. Jesus is the same essence as the Father. He's fully divine. Fully divine. Jesus in John, in in the gospel of John, it says, Jesus responds to whatever his father desires. He doesn't go off and do his own thing. He actually lives his life in response to the father. Well, in the middle, we're also, as followers of Jesus, we're sons and daughters of God. So there's a, so these are the th- kind of three ways that you can kind of like see father in the, in scripture and they're all a little bit different. He, he's the father of all creation. He gives life to all creation. He's the father of Jesus, not in the sense of giving him life, but Jesus works in complete harmony with the God of heaven. And then as followers of Jesus are the barrier of sin and separation between ourselves and God has been removed by the work of Jesus. So now we have a a relationship with our Father in heaven. We now have a relationship with God. Does that make sense? So those are kind of the three ways, maybe sometimes confusing. Those are the three ways that Father is sometimes used in Scripture. They're all a little bit different. But when... when, uh, Paul mentions this prayer. He talks about praying to the Father in heaven, and he talks about from whom every, 
all families in heaven earth derive its name. Some commentators say, oh, that's, like, those are just followers of Jesus. That's just, it, it's this. Some others would say, no, that's all creation. And I'm really not going to make a big deal of it. I think Paul does really expansively deal with all creation often throughout, throughout Ephesians. And so it seems like Paul is saying, to me at least, man, like I'm praying to this one who's, who's literally creator of all. And then he kind of like narrows it down to exactly what he asks. So Paul says, he kneels. The condition of your heart, the condition of my inmost being, the condition of who you are is something that literally requires kneeling before the Father in heaven. Remember, we talked some talk, talk about the storyline of scripture. The first part of that is creating. And so as we deal with who we are as human beings, our internal life, we go back to the fact that the Father is the creator of all. And so we pray, we communicate with him because he's the one who designs us. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who's the expert of our inner being, our hearts, who we are, what makes us go. Notice Paul moves on in verses 16 and 17. He talks about the depths of our heart. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Just a couple things here. Notice the, kind of the, some of the richness of Paul's language. He talks about glorious riches. Uh, some translations have the riches of his glory. Like God is not a pauper when it comes to glory. God is rich when it comes to glory. He talks about strengthening you with power through his spirit. All of those are words that significantly emphasize just God is dripping with power and glory. He's dripping with strength. His intent is not for us to be scrounging human beings. His intent is for us to be strengthened human beings. And notice then some of the other language that deals sort of with the internal part. He talks about inner being. He talks about dwell in your hearts. He talks about through faith. It's kind of interesting that he says that, isn't it? Look at this verse. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, now this should kind of, I remember when I saw this maybe a year or so ago, it just really kind of grabbed me. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes we use this language. I don't know if it's the most helpful language, but sometimes we say, okay, I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart. And basically what that means is I'm going to invite him to be at the core of who I am. But notice Paul doesn't say like, oh, you already asked Jesus into your heart. I mean, he could say that, like, like why would he say so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith if they, quote, already asked Jesus into their heart? Well, why is he saying? Because Paul says there's something more dynamic to knowing God than simply that original invitation for Jesus to be at the center of your life. Yes, that begins the journey. Yes, once Jesus is at the core of who you are, it's never going to change. You're completely forgiven, completely righteous, completely have relationship with the Father in heaven. You're completely a son from moment one when you embrace Jesus as your Savior. 
You are completely, you completely belong to the Father in heaven. But Paul also says, he prays that Christ may be, may dwell in your hearts. In other words, yes, Jesus is present in you, but is he like fully present in you? It is his being making a difference in every aspect of your life. Maybe I'll just kind of give you a little, I don't know, maybe this will make sense, maybe it won't, but uh, it just came to me actually last night. So um, I hate stink bugs. Probably how many of you hate stink bugs? Yeah. Um, so there, I, 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 I think I'm still traumatized because I think I still remember the first time I ever smelled a stink bug. Um, we had a blue, bunch of blueberry bushes back home when I was growing up. And, and I remember like smelling this awful smell, terrible smell. And it was I could never, I think stink bugs were new then. And now they're taking over the world, but they were new then. And it was just some, this most awful smell. And so I think ever since then, I've been traumatized by it, but that's the deal. Um, so whenever I see a stink bug, I kind of like snap it. And like, I don't know, I don't know why I do that, but I do. It's just like, you, you like snap those things and they hit the wall. And um, it's just maybe a weird, sick sense of pleasure I get. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so last night I was actually taking a shower and um, there's a stink bug like crawling up the shower curtain. And it's just like nasty, you know, like... And so, and here's the deal, like at that moment, like the, the DNA of the stink bug is like in there, you know? Um, but like it's just, it's contained in the stink bug. Like the, the stink of the DNA, the stinky stuff uh, is contained within the stink bug. If you follow me? So, so I, I, I snap the thing and he, you know, hits the uh, shower wall, falls to the tub floor, and he's like upside down. He's like throwing his legs all over this thing and all, you know, how that works. And here's the deal. And then I smell the thing. Like I really do. Like, like the smell of that stink bug wafts through the shower. Um, now every bit of stink bug DNA was in the shower, but like through him being snapped and like being on the show, like, now I have the richness of stink bug aroma around me. Does that make sense? Like, 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 like that's, that's how it is a little bit with the person of Christ. Like, like I mean, like, like in the opposite way. See, a lot of us have, asked, have like technically asked Jesus into our heart. And is he there? Yes. Like, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The divine DNA of the Holy Spirit resides in you. But there's something totally different from the Holy Spirit just, not just, but residing in you. You're a son and his daughter, but has, has the aroma of the Holy Spirit and the beauty of Christ, has that wafted through your life? Or is it just contained in the theology that the Holy Spirit indwells you? Is your theology of, of Christ in you that Jesus is at the center of your life? Is that sort of just a little encapsulated fact? Or does the beauty of that truth 
of who Jesus, that waft through you so that Christ may dwell in your heart. That's what Paul is praying. That the presence of Jesus would not just be contained in this theological fact, but that it would waft through your being. Does that make sense? And so that's what, is it wafting through you? He says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Just notice the expansive language in that. I mean, if, if Paul simply wanted us to have the memorized fact that God loves us, he could have used a lot less language than what he uses here. He says, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. In other words, Paul is praying that the love of Christ would not just be a memorized fact that dwells in sort of this encapsulated part of your being, but that it would fully waft through your life and that you would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Listen, friends, those two are totally different. And so to what level does the love of Christ, is, is that a memorized brain fact? And by the way, is absolutely that. It needs to start there. Or to what level is your innermost being, your heart and soul, to what level are you cultivating the ability of your heart to grasp that his love is wide and long and high and deep? Have, have you moved beyond Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so, which is absolutely the place to start. It's absolutely a, a rock, firm foundation as we sang. But to what extent has that wafted its way through your life? Notice, by the way, that Paul is not saying theology or truth doesn't matter. Some of, some of us might be saying like, yeah, like I've always said, like doctrine doesn't matter. Like, I mean, just to be clear, like the statement doctrine doesn't matter is itself a doctrine. So you can't say doctrine doesn't matter because if you say doctrine doesn't matter, well, that's your doctrine. That doctrine doesn't matter. So Paul spends the first whole two chapters saying, this is the truth of God. This is the truth of Jesus. This is the truth of how you belong to him. Paul spends the first two chapters rigorously talking through that. Early on in Ephesians 3, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Uh, he mentions the word revelation a couple times. You don't have, you can't get to the knowledge of God and his, the fullness of his love filling your innermost being without doctrine. Because for two chapters, Paul's saying, I'm going to give you doctrine about how much God loves you. I'm going to give you doctrine about how you belong to God. I'm going to give you doctrine about his work in your life. I'm going to give you doctrine about being forgiveness. Paul spends two entire chapters saying, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. But then he also says, I, I want that doctrine to waft through your life. I want that doctrine to dwell in your hearts in a rich kind of way. Friends, listen, friends. You're not the maker of your own truth. Paul says, this is truth revealed by God. And it's truth that's the, for the foundation of your life. 
Just a couple other thoughts here. Let me just kind of expand this a little bit. Sometimes, even when it comes to who we are as human beings, I was thinking about this, this, this fact this week, that uh, in sort of Christian circles, um, often being created in God's image is certainly at the core of our foundational belief that every human life is equally valid. Every human life is equally valuable to God. Whether it's the aged, whether it's the unborn, whether it's the highly functioning full capacity, whether it's the less functioning lower capacity, every single person is of value because God's image is in every single person. But I was also looking at this verse this week, and it never really dawned on me. And if Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Listen, friends, I've probably spoken a lot of messages on being in, created in the image of God and why that's the foundation for the fact that every single life, race, ethnicity, capacity, age, unborn, born, whatever matters. I preached a lot of messages on that. I'm not sure that I've really dove into the fact of this idea. And God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. When it says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that's the language of intimacy. That's the language that, yes, not just factually, all people are created in God's image, and therefore we protect all life wherever we find it. But how much... Have I focused on the fact that you're alive because through Adam, God breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. Uh, not too many people this morning are going to breathe into your nostrils. <laughs> like that's the language of intimacy. That's the language of closeness. And so how much maybe have we only utilize scripture for maybe proving a fact? Or how much have we also used it to say, like you were created by a personal God who breathed into your nostrils the breath of his life. It's close, it's intimate, it's personal, and you're a living being. And the only way that you'll be an authentic living being is to live in life-giving relationship with this God who breathed life into you. He did it through you being physically created, and he also breathed life into you through the beauty of the breath of Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, I pray that you would know the depth of God's love, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. That it wouldn't just be a, a brain fact that you're created in God's image, but that, that it would be a, a soul fact, a spirit fact, that you receive life from God. That it causes you joy. 
that it expands your world. We'll get into much more of this next week. I'm probably going to break it off here for this week. But, but here's what I want you to remember as a result of this morning, friends. Probably some of us are more brain-oriented. Probably some of us are more sort of heart and soul-oriented. And so some of us might need to say, like, man, like, yeah, like, I know all these facts about God. And God desires for them to be more than just facts. Your brain is not just what shapes your life. Your heart does shape your life. And here's the deal. Our culture says your heart can't be shaped. You just got to follow your heart. You just got to go wherever your heart is going. The gospel says, no, 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 no. Your brain does need to know facts. But the gospel also needs to shape your heart. The gospel needs to shape what you love. The gospel needs to shape what you're drawn to. The gospel needs to shape your heart. And so some of us, maybe we're, we're steeped in, in brain truth, and that's absolutely essential. It's absolutely true. Maybe for some of us, we're just kind of like steeped in experiential goodness. Like, I'm going to follow my authentic self, and in days you don't feel connected with God, well, that's fine because you don't feel connected with God. And so if you live just connected to your inmost being, you're sort of at the whim of your own prison of thought in your own heart. What does it look like for the truth of Jesus, not just to be brain truth, what does it also look like for it to be being truth? What does it look like for you not just to say, Jesus, come into my heart. What does it look like for Christ to dwell in your heart through faith? What does it look like for the beautiful aroma of Christ to grasp your being? Do you have a sense of joy and delight? Do you have a sense of genuinely finding happiness in God? Is there something about the depth and breadth and, and height of God's love that's not just memorized fact, but actually grips your being? And notice, just close with this, at the very last end, Paul says, this love that surpasses knowledge. It, it is knowledge, it's fact, it's doctrine, God loves you. But it, Paul also says, I desire that this, here it is, and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Yes, it is knowledge, but Paul says, it surpasses knowledge. There's something deeper. There's something more beautiful. There's something glorious. There's something wondrous about this God. And here's the last thing I'll say. We never will experience that by spending a moment here or there in church or thinking about God. We only experience that as we spend enough time meditating on God through the work of his Holy Spirit, through that infiltrating every nook and cranny of our beings. It doesn't mean we're still not moody. I'm moody all the time. Really. But here's the deal. Does the beauty of God's love, does it actually surpass knowledge? 
Is, is your heart being steered by it? Or do you try to remember what you're supposed to know to be a follower of Jesus and your heart goes off to wherever it goes off to? Or does the truth of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, does it shape you? Are you redirecting? Culture says you can't redirect your heart. Gospel says, no, your heart's got to be redirected. Is the gospel redirecting your heart? Let's stand, and we're going to sing the song. Our team's going to come out. Uh, we're going to sing the song, um, 10,000 Reasons. Uh, just as a reminder that the beauty of Christ, the beauty of God, that we have thousands and thousands of reasons uh, to bless God, not just with our mouths, uh, but from the depths of our being, from our souls. So let's sing this together. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship you. Strength is failing 
the angels near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise on ending yeah. 10,000 years and then forever more yeah. bless the Lord bless the Lord all oh, my soul oh my soul worship his soul This week, may you not just dwell in your hearts as an encapsulated person. May you, may the aroma of who you are dwell in our hearts through faith. May we meditate. May our minds be drawn to your love. May it not just be a brain factoid, but may it move into our beings in a way that surpasses knowledge. And God, we kneel before the Father in heaven asking for this to be through the work of your Holy Spirit. And everyone who agreed said... Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here today. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. May you know the height, the width, the length, the depth of Christ's love this week.